This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another bonus interview on the Keeping Carlton Fantasy Hockey Podcast. This one's big news. This one is great preparation for all of your fantasy drafts because there are a lot of weird things that happen in the goalie world. And there's certain things that, you know, Elon and I feel comfortable tackling, but there's a certain level that we can't get to that I think Nick Mercadante brings to the table. And he's been kind enough to join us calling from Connecticut this afternoon or evening. I guess the time of day doesn't matter, depending on when you're listening to this. Nick, if you don't know already, he writes for Hockey Graphs. He's an analytics consultant and knows a ton about goalies, has created and helped popularize a goalie metric that is being used more and more frequently. We're going to get to that. But first, Nick, thanks for coming on the show. Sure. Thanks for having me. So, Nick, before we get to what you've worked on over the last few years, uh, let's talk a little bit just about what we already know about evaluating goalies. And like, it's so I'm not even going to say the GAV phrase because it's become so hackneyed by now. But essentially, what we've had to date hasn't been enough for us to really figure out which goalies are good and which goalies are bad. I mean, they're the obvious examples of each, but so far, we've been limited in our tools to evaluate goalies, usually using, you know, wins, goals against average, save percentage. What are the real limitations of these methods? What are these methods missing that we're hoping to still try and figure out at this point? First, I got to say thanks for not using the GA, <laughs> the GAV, phrase, the phrase which will not be spoken. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny, like uh, about a year ago, which is about the last time I actually wrote a, a proper article, um, I, I switched it to goalies are Benghazi because they're fraught with conflicting you know, conflicting information and a lot of, um, I think a lot of the confusion about goalies doesn't come so much from the statistical analysis because quite frankly, up until, you know, maybe about a year ago, we really just didn't have good stats to go on. I think it comes from the fact that goalie is just entirely unique to hockey. It's much more technically driven. So for those of us that, you know, watch the game and take it in at a, um, you know, at a granular level even, um, and never mind casual fans, it's just really tough to watch a goalie and say, you know, I know what that goalie is doing correctly, or I know what that goalie is doing incorrectly, aside from did the goalie make the save or did the puck end up in the net, right? Right. So, you know, even people that fashion themselves as goalie, as goalie experts, there's infighting amongst them about, you know, okay, you know, technically speaking, did, is, you know, quick over aggressive and does that cause issues with his rebound control that results in goals he shouldn't let in or is or is it that he's making miraculous saves other goalies can't get to 
and there's this, um, you know, there's this kind of infighting that happens uh, even amongst goalie experts on how to properly watch and analyze a goalie from what you see. So that brings us to the statistical side. So up until this point, we just haven't had good stats um, to help kind of peel back the layers of evaluation uh, that go on visually. You know, the, the traditional three are always goals against average, save percentage, and wins. Save percentage is totally fine. I mean, save percentage, I think you have to take it with a grain of salt because um, when you look at all-purpose save percentage, you're including power play, which is an uneven playing field for the goalie. So, and, and some goalies, quite frankly, are really good at even strength, but not so good on the penalty kill. So if they're on a team where they're uh, taking a lot of penalties, the guy might be a star, even strength, and on any other team, his statistics would be much better. But because he's on, you know, let's say the Buffalo Sabres from two years ago took a ton of penalties, he's kind of unfairly judged on the fact that he's getting caved in on, on the penalty kill. So save percentage even has its issues at all purpose, and you have to kind of break it up. Wins, forget about it. I don't look at wins hardly at all. Um, I think it's wrong to judge a goalie on wins because they can't score goals, right? <laughs> so, right. How many more wins in a season can a goalie possibly be worth? Well, that's that's I think that's one of the big questions that we're you know we're trying to figure out right now. And one of the things that I've been digging into um, and looking at especially closely is what is the goalie's actual impact on winning? Like I said, a goalie can't win a game because he can't score. So. If he pitches a shutout and the other team pitches, a, uh, the other goalie pitches a shutout, um, why should he be penalized if he loses in overtime and he's only given up one goal on, say, 45 shots? I think that's unfair. You know, what I think is worthwhile is to try to say, okay, how much is a goalie actually impacting winning? And so I've been working on a stat, which, you know, I don't want to get into too much because I'm going to be talking about it at the RIT analytics conference. But what I call, I call it win threshold, which I think, I hope is going to resonate with some of the more kind of old-fashioned um, analysis where you talk about a goalie and you say, hey, he wins us games. He, you know, he's a winner. He's a champion. He, d- he does anything it takes to win. I-, I hope that this stat will kind of resonate with them because it's looking at a goalie's actual impact on winning independent of what his team is doing in front of him. Goals against average, let's just ignore and pretend it doesn't exist yeah. because that's a team stat. That's exactly what I'm talking about. A goalie shouldn't be penalized, again, for how many goals he gives up. It should be how many goals he's giving up considering the number and type of shots he's facing. A goalie who gives up two goals a game on 10 shots is not as good as a goalie who gives up three goals a game on 20 shots. So, you know, I I think goals against average is entirely flawed and it should just be wiped out of the the lexicon of of goalie analysts. But, uh, you know, unfortunately... You watch games like I do, and that's one of the first things they say about a goalie on television is, oh, his goals against average is great, or whatever it may be. Right, so there is this like conflating of a team effect and the goalie's individual skill in these stats, and wins and goals yeah. against average especially, and then save percentage, you know, even at even strength, can be a little reductive sometimes and not telling the whole story, and so... One of your stats that you've put out there recently, uh, I guess I'll put the name out there, adjusted goal saves above average per 60 minutes. It's a mouthful and a keyboard fold as well if you're typing it out. (laughs) Uh, Tell us about that and how it might be an improvement on what's already out there. One of the issues with 
goaltending analysis is that it, it in, it's an issue with analyzing almost any anything going on in a hockey game or in any team sport is the impact of team effects. You know how much is what's going on in front of you actually impacting what your the the statistical representation of your performance is. And you know one of the things I think we're tasked with we meaning you know folks that are doing uh, statistical analysis on the game. One of the things we're tasked with is untangling the impact of individual performance from the team effects of things going on in front of them. So. When I came up with this statistic, adjusted goal saved above average per 60 minutes, people have started calling it Mercad 60, what I really was trying to do was I was trying to start the ball rolling in that direction of untangling individual goaltender performance independent of what's ha- what the team is doing in front of him or the, or, you know, the cards that he's dealt. What the stat does is basically it takes all the shots and it splits them up into danger zones. Uh, those danger zones are, you know, primarily it's determined by uh, shooting percentage or save percentage from different areas of the ice. Really how it sets up is high danger is close to the net and in the slot. Medium danger is kind of the arch around that. And low danger is all the perimeter around that. So you bin all the shots into these danger zones. And then what you do in order to determine what their Mercad 60 is, is you compare their save percentage in each zone versus a league average goalie's save percentage in each zone. And you put that league average goalie in their shoes and you see in consideration of the shots faced, how many more goals saved the goalie in question is making than a league average goalie or how many fewer goals saved the goalie in question is making than a league average goalie. So really all it is is it ends up being a differential from zero, which is league average. And if a goalie is higher than zero, meaning, you know, he's uh, one goal saved per 60 minutes, then he's saving one goal more than a league average goalie would be saving uh, if he was facing the same shots. And I think the value of it is two things. First of all, it puts everybody on an even playing field and compares. It makes it easy to compare peers and compare across generations. So that's the first thing that, that I think is useful. And the second thing I think that is useful is, is something that happens with adjusted save percentage, which is we start looking at the, the quality of the shots being faced and um, start talking about, well, this goalie has it rough. Henrik Lundqvist does not have very good defense in front of him in the high danger areas, so he's facing a lot of shots from those areas. How well does he do facing those shots? And why are we you know, just treating all shots the same when we know factually that it's much easier to save a shot from the point than it is to save one of those shots from the slot? So it starts that conversation, and it starts kind of teasing out individual performance from the cards that are dealt. And it passes the smell test to prove it. Can you just give us a few names of who, say, some of the recent or all-time leaders were in Mercad per 60 minutes and who some of the lower-end guys have been? You know, goal saved above average has been around for a while. I don't know who actually came up with it. As a goalie coach, I don't know, 10 years ago I started using it. I'm not even sure where I got it from. I think I found it on the Internet somewhere. But, you know, this is kind of a, a spin on that, and it's putting more information into it. And so one of the things you do when you, when you come up with a new stat or when you take an existing stat and, and kind of redevelop it is you try to see if it passes the smell test. And, 
You know, so you take those examples of players that are transcendent. So you take your Henrik Lundqvist, you take your Carey Price, um, guys like that, and you say, okay, how do they actually look in this statistic? Because our eyes couldn't be that far off that we don't know that, you know, if Henrik Lundqvist is great or not. The nice thing is that one of the first things that jumped out was if you look at uh, since 2007, there's absolutely no doubt that Henrik Lundqvist is an all-time great goaltender. His cumulative adjusted goal saved above average is astronomically higher than any of his peers because of his longevity and his ability to kind of to basically perform at an elite level of you know let's call it the top five goalies in the NHL year in and year out. So right there, that's passing the smell test. You know, how was Carey Price's season, you know, two years ago in 14-15? Uh, uh, everybody knew he had a, a, a great season. How great was it? Well, he was at the top of the stat that season, which, again, kind of passes the smell test. And then you look at the bottom of things and you say, okay, well, Cam Ward is a goalie that people dog on and who people say traditionally hasn't been very strong. Where does he bear out in this? And sure enough, he's down near the bottom. So those are kind of the smell test things. What, what's really interesting to me is then when you get into the in-between, where you start to um, split hairs between certain goalies uh, who maybe in an eye test you'd say, you know, okay, this guy looks great, like a John Quick. How does he actually perform? And, and what you find out from this stat is that historically he's been an above-average goalie, but not far above average, which is interesting. And then on the other hand, you've got a goalie like Steve Mason where everybody kind of dogs on him because he had such a bad dip in his career um, after his rookie season, basically. And you look at him, and he's steadily risen in the stat year after year, and now he's one of the elite goaltenders in the NHL, according to the stat. So, so those types of things are interesting. And what I think has helped the, the stat to, to catch on is that people have noticed those sorts of things. Pecorine ends up on the, on the wrong side of it, which surprised a lot of people. But then when they thought about it, they said, no, that kind of makes sense. And they latch onto it, which I think is a strength of the stat. And it, and it helps people to digest it better. I don't mean to try and use it for a purpose other than what it's for. But is there any connection between uh, adjusted goals saved above average per 60 minutes and save percentage? Do we ever see the two linked or correlated in a given way? It correlates pretty closely to adjusted save percentage. If you threw it on a on a graph, it lines up pretty good. I, I don't remember exactly what the correlation is, but it's pretty close, um, which is good because really what what the stat is doing is it's rearranging save percentage to turn it into a comparison stat where you have a league average, which is zero, that is the same every single season. So it should correlate to adjusted save percentage because that's basically what it's using in order to be presented. So um, it does correlate with that. Now, if you look at it against, let's say, all-purpose save percentage, it's different. And the reason is because all-purpose save percentage is including shorthanded situations and power plays, whereas this stat only uses five-on-five. And the reason I only use five-on-five is because I wanted to control for situation. I didn't want to have any issues with the goalie being perceived as playing on a different playing field than, or ice surface, I should say, you know, than one of his peers. So that's where it probably doesn't correlate as well as with just regular save percentage. Yeah, and before we go any further, we keep throwing out this term adjusted. And just to defang that a little bit, because it sounds 
a little intimidating when what are we adjusting here? Adjusted is usually just to suggest that we're taking into account shot location. Is that right? That's right. If you think of um, the offensive zone, think of like a wrench facing the goal. The inside of the wrench is right around the crease in the slot area. That's your high danger shots. Those have the highest um, percentage chance to go into the net. Your medium danger is the actual wrench itself. So it's kind of the middle of the ice all the way up to the blue line. That's your medium danger or between the hash marks, if you can visualize that. And then low danger is all the perimeter areas. You know, most of your shots from the point from, from a defenseman on the left or right side or things that are coming from the side of the net. Those are your low danger. And in all adjusted save percentage is, is the save percentage in each of those danger zones. And so all, the, all that uh, Mercad 60 does is it basically takes it and kind of rearranges it into uh, a more digestible um, presentation. It does. I, I, I agree. And I like that visual you offered. And speaking of visuals, you know, we keep mentioning the term eye test here. And I'm going to be honest, when I'm watching a goalie, I have no idea what to be looking for to tell if they're on their game that night or if there's something critically wrong with their technique. Can you give me just maybe a couple things that I can look for on a nightly basis when I'm watching a goalie to, as a casual hockey fan or maybe above casual hockey fan, is there anything that I might be able to see that you can tell me to look for? So I think that's a great question. So one of the things I said earlier is we're just getting into this statistical analysis of goaltending and trying to tease out team effects and all these things. And it's not perfect, um, but we're headed in the right direction. Most people really are taking goalies in and taking their performance in through just traditional eye test, watching the goalie, right? And a lot of casual fans, you know, maybe, you know, fans that are goaltender that played the game and are goaltenders might have a leg up on analyzing a goalie. But I, I don't think that anybody's eye test is perfect. And I think that what draws in a lot of fans and makes a lot of fans kind of um, latch on to a particular goalie is the wow factor. When they make a huge glove save, right? Um, or they do a split across the net to make a last-minute save on the goal line. Those are the type of, types of things that a lot of people latch onto, and they go, they go, oh, this, this goalie's great um, because they're doing that. So it's why a lot of people latch onto a goalie like John Quick because um, he's very aggressive and he's very, um, I wouldn't call him flashy, but he's super athletic you know, he's sprawling all over the net, uh, moving a lot laterally and doing all these things. So when you watch him, you kind of get drawn in. You go, wow, that's amazing. I think that that's the wrong thing to look for. I think that what people should be looking for is your ability to make saves look easy. And I go back to Steve Mason. Or another more well-known example would be Henrik Lundqvist. Henrik Lundqvist, if you watch him, a lot of what he does is not very flashy. It's simple saves, stuff hitting him in the chest, butterflies where the puck ends up in the corner. A lot of low shots are hitting his stick and deflecting up over the glass or into the corner. He makes his life easier for him by not doing things like kicking pucks off his pads back out for rebounds, getting too far out of position. If you know anything about Henrik Lundqvist, he's very conservative. He stays on his goal line. So he's not um, one of these ultra-aggressive goalies where on the first shot, He may be challenging way far out of his net, but then after that, he's kind of scrambling, right? You know, what I tell people is, if you're looking at a goalie and it looks like their job is easy, but you're watching the shot count go up, you're looking at a really good goalie with a team that's probably not doing him justice defensively. Steve Mason's such a great example of that with the Flyers, where he makes save after save where it's just he 
he goes down his butterfly, catches it in his chest because he's perfectly square to the shooter. He eats it up with his with his big chest, and then they have a face off. And they do that over and over and over again with him. When I see him making those types of saves, I go, "Wow, he's really on his game right now." Um, and it may not be something that stands out to a casual fan, but to me, I see that and I go, "He's in position." He's big, he's square, he's making his life easy for himself. And I think that that's what fans need to look for is, does it look like it's easy for him? Well, then he's probably doing a pretty good job. Now, I don't want to get too deep into this because we still have a ton to get to, but just quickly, is it fair for me to want to point out that maybe Dominic Kashik might be the exception to that rule? Yeah, of course. Okay. Well, so, so I, you know, the, the crazy thing with Hashik is he had a soft chest and he made a lot of saves, that were easy saves that you never notice. It's just he's remembered for the wild, dramatic saves. Right. But he he wasn't truly out of position all the time. I think it's just it's um, you know, it's our selective memory that him sprawling on his back and reaching over with his glove. Right. Those are the memorable moments that will define his career. Exactly. And and so I think that you know he's the exception to the rule because what he truly is is he is a goalie who didn't make his life harder for himself. He really was a, a great fundamental goalie in his own way, but he also had that amazing athletic ability to be able to do things that other goalies couldn't do, to be able to make those saves that other goalies could not make. And I think that if you want to compare him to like a goalie like a John Quick, you know, Quick has that same athleticism, but he makes his life so hard for himself that he can't maximize the value of his athleticism to its fullest potential. Because everything he does is two steps out of position or he's too far out of his net or he hasn't recovered properly or things like that. And I think that that's the difference between him and Hashik is Hashik actually did make his life pretty easy for himself most of the time. We just remember the, the really flashy, amazing stuff. Okay, let's move on to how to figure out what a goalie is going to do in the future because to this point we're essentially talking about how to evaluate what a goalie has already done, new ways to describe what sort of performances they've put in over their career. But I want to know if, if I'm looking at a guy and I want to try and figure out what he's going to do next year, either in adjusted goal saves above average per 60 or adjusted save percentage, is what's the best way to do that? Is, is that a repeatable number? Is that something I can count on being consistent from year to year? So so the short answer is no. Okay. <laughs> and, and the reason is, so what I like to say about the stat is it is a better descriptive tool than what we currently have, but it is not yet a predictive tool. And that's because we have not fully teased out and untangled the team effect from goaltending performance. So, you know, one of the things I mentioned before, I'm going to be speaking soon at the RIT Hockey Analytics Conference. One of the things I'm going to be talking about is untangling team effects from from the stat to help make it more predictable or to find a different way to predict performance going forward. And so one of the things I've really been looking at is not so much the goalie's individual performance, but how the goalie is impacting the team's defensive performance in front of him. Um, This is a concept I kind of stole from the NFL or some of the NFL analytics folks. It came up with um, Randy Moss, where Randy Moss towards the end of his career was saying, I'm the greatest wide receiver of all time. And everybody kind of laughed at it. But then you know, some analytics folks said, well, wait a second, let's look at Randy Moss's impact on the quarterbacks that he played with. And it turns out that, you know, something like, I think, seven of the eight quarterbacks that, or seven of the nine quarterbacks that he played with had career years when they played with Randy Moss, which is 
an impact stat, right? So then they started to, to analyze what is Randy Moss's impact on a quarterback's statistics. So this is kind of a with, with or without you type of thing, and I want to apply that to goaltending. So how, does, how do defensemen look you know, in terms of Corsi against, in terms of save percentage, in terms of goals against, all those things with and without a goalie in question? Now you have to have enough sample size to be able to have it be predictive, but um, I think that that will help tease out or remove some of the team effect and look strictly at the impact of the goalie on his team. In terms of what we have now in prediction, it's really, really hard. The only way to do it is to make some serious adjustments. And the way that I've done it is with Marcel's. And basically, Marcel's, what I, what I do, the, sh- the short answer to what a Marcel is, is it's a simple predictive tool where basically I'm regressing everybody's statistics towards their career averages in order to try to predict their future performance. So it works to some extent. You know where it fails is that I think any any hockey fan knows that there are a lot of goalies that just have this like one and done amazing year, right? Like Varlamov had one a couple years ago. Bobrovsky has had one. Um, Devin Dubnik had one last year or two years ago, I should say. They have these like outlandishly great performances, and then they never do it again. Those are almost impossible to predict right now, uh, unfortunately. But it is what it is, you know. That's, right. That's where the voodoo thing comes from, I guess. Right. And you can try to predict the likelihood that it's going to happen, but you, you can never really quite pin it down. Is there some other tool, like like maybe a career trajectory type yeah. thing? Like we know an aging curve for forward production. We have a reasonable idea of an aging curve for how defensemen work out. Is there one for goalies? So, yes, but it's debated. Based on the stuff that I've done with adjusted goal saved above average per 60 and with some other things i have the aging curve where a goalie's peak performance is years 27 through 29 and i've heard some other people have done some stuff where they say no it's really 25 to 27 um but everything i i keep finding comes to you can anticipate peak performance 27 to 29 now what that peak is going to be is the difficult part so you know one of the things that i want to dig more into and I think that you know all people around hockey especially teams that have the resources should dig dig into is biometrics you know how is the goalie physically during their peak years not so much age but how are they physically everybody kind of knows that goalies you know have a shorter lifespan maybe than your average or above average forward they you know get the knee injuries they get the hip injuries they get the groin injuries and as soon as they get them, things start to crumble. Um, you know, the most, uh, the, the most recent example of it is Pecorine, where before his hip injury, uh, he was one of, I'd say, he was a top 10 goalie in the NHL. After, uh, he's probably a, you know, bottom 10 goalie in the NHL, especially in terms of starters. But nobody could have predicted that during his peak when he was 27 years old. Right. Now he's, you know, now he's 33 and he's, he's quite frankly, the past two years, he's fallen completely off a cliff. And I think that's injury related. If we had studied more about biometrics and we had a better idea of how to predict based on a type of injury or the goalie's height and weight and, uh, you know, I don't know, oxygen levels, all these sorts of things, would we be able to predict what their performance might be, 
you know, over a span of time, over their best three years or into their 30s or whatever it is. So I think that that's where we could probably, you know, yield the best results as far as trying to predict peak years for a goalie. I love the idea of going down that path. I'm curious to see how much teams might allow us to know about that sort of thing. But knowing what we do know, knowing, you know, whatever we know about the black box that is goaltending, maybe uh, we've got a few minutes left here. I'm hoping I can just throw out like a bunch of names and you can take 30 seconds or a minute to talk to me about each one. I'm going to start with Henrik Lundqvist. And I might try and wrap him up with Roberto Luongo because they're two older goaltenders. Although mm-hmm. it's hard to believe Luongo is like three years older. I know, isn't that amazing? Henrik Lundqvist. Like yeah. I thought Lundqvist was old. Luongo's going to turn 38 before the end of this next season, which is impressive. My concern with both of them, though, is that it's starting to show. And this is, you yeah. know, sort of the impetus for my aging curve question, although I, I imagine they'll have defied whatever we end up coming up with about that. But Lundqvist, you know, he's been a 920 guy for the last few years, but I feel like he's having more rough patches, more and more every season. Uh, I mean, it's a small sample, but to end the year last season, like over the last couple months, he was a 900 guy. Yeah, he was, he was dreadful. He fell off after the All-Star break. Uh, and then Luongo, speaking of falling off after the All-Star break, like uh, Lungvist's decline was just, say, four save percentage points. But Luongo went from a 930 guy before the All-Star break to 907 in 23 games after the All-Star break. And again, it's not like an 80 or 100 game sample, but I feel like there's reason to think that are, are these guys just starting to get fatigued? Can they hold up to being workhorse goalies? You see the same thing with, um, with Ryan Miller is another example of that older goalie, especially him because he's, he plays such an athletic style. Uh, aggressive style. You worry that, you know, over the long haul of a season or multiple seasons in your 30s, it's just fatigue. You know, you're just going to get more tired and you play whatever it is, four games in 10 days, and you're just going to be exhausted. There's definitely something to that. I mean, I, I don't think it would be unreasonable to uh, just even as conjecture to say that there's something to that. What I will say is that Lundqvist and Luongo are freaks of nature. So we almost have to put them aside as a rule for goalies because they're so incredibly impossibly rare. There's no other goalies like Lundqvist and Luongo that have had the longevity of career playing as a starter for you know a span of 10, 11 years in the NHL right now. There's none, zero. You know, There's guys that have come close. Hiller is an example, but look, I mean, he's really fallen off as, as his career has progressed. So they're incredibly rare. They're kind of once-in-a-generation type of goalies, not only because of just their peak level of ability, but their ability to sustain that peak level for years and years and years. And now they're in the, you know, I guess what you would call the twilight of their career. I, I've said this on a million podcasts, but father time, undefeated world champion. <laughs> eventually, eventually they're going to decline for certain overall. You know, they're going to start a season and they're going to be worse than they were the season before for the long haul of that season. But think with these guys, if you can spell them enough in season and they can maintain the performance that they're doing. So like you pointed out, those great spans of performance. So Luongo pre all-star break was phenomenal. He's one of the top five goalies in the NHL. Um, Lundqvist had spurts of greatness last year, and he also had, you're, you're, you're right, he had a couple more, you know, five, ten game spans where he was, um, where he was human. But if you can spell those goalies a little bit um, and anticipate when it's going to go sideways uh, and, and put a, a 
you know, a capable backup in, you're going to probably be able to extend them a couple more years before you really experience a, a huge, huge fall off a cliff. And I think we've seen that with Luongo. You know, I think that the Schneider thing um, back in Vancouver actually helped Luongo a little bit because he didn't play quite as much um, as he might have if he had a bad backup. And, you know, who knows? Maybe that gave him a little, you know, a little extra to make it this far without a, a really bad decline. Yeah, I suppose it's maybe a little greedy to keep wanting more and more from these guys. We have to acknowledge they are human, and hopefully their coaches, Gerard Gallant and Alan Vigneault, will treat them kindly uh, as they finish off their careers. Let's move to a couple guys who are younger, uh, but one of them especially... You know, if we were talking about biometric data, that would definitely come into play. Let's start with Sergei Bobrovsky, who uh, is 28 years old and had a really terrible season for the first time as a goalie in Columbus. Now, Columbus is not a great team, but they haven't really been a great team for the spell of his time there. But his C percentage dropped to a 9.08 just when everyone was starting to get comfortable with the idea uh-huh. of Sergei Bobrovsky as a top 10, maybe even top five goalie in the league. Is this an injury thing? Is it something he can bounce back from? Or do we need to adjust our expectations from him? I think we definitely need to adjust our expectations. I think the expectations were always kind of out of whack because he had, it really what it was was a small sample of greatness. It was really only about 30, 35 games of greatness. There are a lot of goalies that have had unbelievable runs for 30 or 35 games. Cam Talbot comes to mind. Uh, Andrew Hammond is a great example. If you're an NHL goalie, first of all, I kind of reject the notion that any goalies in the NHL are just flat out bad. Because in order to get to the NHL and reach that level as a goalie, when there's only two spots on a team, maybe three or four that are going to, or five that are going to play during a season, you're an exceptional goaltender, a world-class goaltender. And if you have a team that is playing to your strengths uh, defensively um, or on a good run or whatever you want to call it, uh, or you're just hot, um, you could have a span of 30, 35, 40 games, even right in a row, where you're absolutely phenomenal. And I think that Bobrovsky experienced a little bit of that. Now, I won't say that Bobrovsky is as bad as his lows. I don't think he is. I don't think he's as bad as he was last year. But I definitely don't think he's as good as his highs are either. I think that he's probably somewhere closer to a league average NHL goalie, which is very good. To be a league average NHL goalie, really what it means is that you're one of the top 20 to 25 goalies. So that's, that's very, very good. I just think that people maybe thought that he was more than than what he actually was. And the other thing that I'll I'll point out with Bobrovsky is in terms of adjusted goal saved above average per 60 minutes, in his best season, he was a top six in the NHL that season in that stat, but he wasn't number one. So that kind of teases out the shot quality thing, Mm -hmm. uh, where the shots were coming from. So I'm not saying that his performance was smoke and mirrors, but it probably wasn't quite as good as what his all-purpose save percentage revealed. And then everything since then has been a decline. I also think he's had some injuries, so that may be impacting him as well. And, and it impacts most goalies. Once they you know, start losing their legs a little bit, that's when you see a decline. I, and I think that that hurt him as well. And it's, you know, it's interesting because you've got Corpusalo who had a great season last year. He did, yeah. So... They're going to really have a, a kind of, I think, a goalie controversy. You know, I think they'd be wise to at least spell Bobrovsky quite a bit, but you know, they may even want to take a look at 
whether he should be the starter or not. So let me throw out another guy who I think has a bigger body of work than Sergei Bobrovsky and is just about a year older. Tuka Rask, like, was an undisputed top, I, I feel like I want to say top three goalie, although I don't have the numbers in front of me, uh, for so long in the yep. NHL. Like, he was infallible in the Boston crease, uh, you know, starting at the age of 22, had a 931 save percentage over 45 games played. And I do realize, by the way, the irony of me mostly just referencing save percentage after our whole chat prior to this about goal evaluation. <laughs> but it's what, I, it's what I'm used to so I'm, and what I've got in front of me. Um, but anyway, kept going, even strength save percentage, always at the top of the league, like three consecutive 930 save percentage seasons. Took a step back two years ago to 922, then took a huge step back last year to like essentially average at best in mm-hmm. nets with a 915 save percentage over 64 games played, which was still like, you know, he, he's taken on a bigger workload in the last two seasons. Is that the sole reason why he's seen that drop? I think that it's probably age. I think that he's, you know, again, this this is where we've been spoiled by goalies like Lundqvist and Luongo, where we think, just because you're a great goalie for any span of time, three years, five years, even six years, uh, that you're going to be a great goalie for much longer than that, or you're going to be a great goalie in, in you know, in well into your 30s. You know, I think Rask had a span of about five years where he absolutely was a top three goalie in the NHL. Among, since 2007, amongst goalies with five, who, who faced 5,000 shots or more, Tuka Rask is number two overall in adjusted goal saved above average per 60 minutes. And he's up there in cumulative too. So, you know, if it's this is a per 60 minute rate stat, if you take away the per 60 minutes and just have it cumulative, he's done it over a long span of time. You know, over that span of time, he's faced 7,335 shots. So he's done it over a long span of time. And that's and that's on the high end for any goalie in that in that span of time. But to put it in perspective, Henrik Lundqvist has done it over 12,177 shots. Luongo's done it over 10,802 shots. These are even strength shots, by the way, not all, all shots. Okay. So Lundqvist and Luongo have, have screwed up our perception of what a great goalie is. You know, In my mind, Tuka Rask is a Hall of Fame goalie, but I don't think he'll ever be in the Hall of Fame because, you know, I don't know, he came after Tim Thomas. Tim Thomas won the Stanley Cup. You know, he hasn't won a Stanley Cup on his own. He hasn't been one of those goalies who's been able to carry the Bruins right to that point of winning. And so, you know, it's that it's that narrative of winning championships or putting the team on your back or all those things. People will say, well, Boston's always had Chara as well. They've had pretty solid defense up until the past couple of years. You know, how good could Rask actually be? But that's where I get into this the descriptive stat of looking at shot quality in adjusted goal saved above average for 60 minutes. And I go, no, the guy has been great for a really long time. It's just, you know, he's on a no- probably a normal aging curve where it's about time for him to start winding down. And that's just, that's okay. It is what it is, you know? <laughs> yeah, we have to we have to accept it. So, so you're not expecting a bounce back necessarily from him. Like maybe no. he can get back up to an above average NHL goalie, but the, the days of 925, 930 are, are likely behind us without pinning you down because I, I understand that next year anything can yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah, he's going to blow it out of the water and yeah. Yeah, win the Vezina or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't expect it. I would expect more of the same. I, last year and the year before, he started leveling off. And the year before that, he had an injury. Um, I think it was his groin 
which is devastating for a goalie like him because he plays that finish style where he's down on his knees a lot and he's pushing hard laterally. And when you get that groin injury, I, I know from <laughs> experience, when you get that groin injury, it makes it so hard to push with, with power and speed. So it's probably not perceptible to an average fan, but he, he probably has slowed down a touch. And um, I, I wouldn't expect him to suddenly magically regain that. Um, I would expect that he'll probably be the same as what he was this past year, which is a serviceable goalie, closer to a league average goalie than to an elite goalie, which, you know, I love the guy. He's one of my favorite goalies maybe of all time, but um, that's just, you know, just the way it is. Yeah, I got to say, it pains me to hear the word serviceable used in the Tuka Rask context, but I, I, of course, appreciate and acknowledge your insight, even if I might still be in denial. I know, and I hate it too because if, if you follow my Twitter, I'm always like I'm the biggest Tuka Rask apologist uh, in the world, and and all of the, uh, the the Boston fans that follow me on Twitter, they're always like they come to me for like positive reinforcement. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the position you're in. Unfortunately, it's it's a curse. You've got to be the guy who gives us these reality checks. Let's move on from established goalies and take a quick look at some guys who are coming up in new roles who are taking on essentially starting roles or, or able have the opportunity to do so. Uh, and they haven't had the chance to do that before. And I'm talking about guys like Connor Hellebuck in Winnipeg who, Oh my gosh, I'm hoping Paul Maurice finally sets aside Andre Pavlik once and for all. Then you've got Jake Allen who does not have Brian Elliott to contend with anymore in St. Louis, Frederick Anderson in Toronto, uh, no longer in a tandem situation with John Gibson in Anaheim. And now you have John Gibson on his own in Anaheim too. So those two have split and both have starting roles ahead of them, seemingly undisputed going into camp. What can you tell me about how to take a stab at whether these guys are going to be as good in a starting role as they have been in a tandem or backup context? Well, this is where, you know, we get into two, I think two things. First, for the young goalies, we get into the absolute, you know, lack of information that we have. And I say we, I mean, any fan, any analyst, I mean, they may have this information internally, but it certainly doesn't seem like they make the best use of it. But we don't have great information about goaltender performance in the minor leagues. We just don't. And so in AHL save percentage has not been shown to correlate at all with NHL performance. So it is really hard to predict how a young goalie is going to react to their first foray, either as a starter or even as a, you know, a backup that's more heavily used. So I don't know what role, for instance, Murray is going to have with Flurry still there. I think that they're probably going to split time. I don't know what that's going to look like over the long haul of the season. It was interesting to see in the playoffs where Murray, you know, they rode him. He was thrust into the role and maybe he just, hey, young guy thrust in the role. He, you know, shuts his brain off and, and performs. But towards the end of that run, there were some serious flaws in his game that, that got revealed um, by teams game planning how to attack him. And he really was probably a weakness for them later in the conference finals and the Stanley Cup. So it'll be interesting to see how he performs over the course of a whole season. Will he make those adjustments to his game to improve? He certainly has a, a great deal of potential and he's had it you know, coming out of juniors. But will he be able to 
make those adjustments at the NHL level. That's tough for any young goalie. I don't care if he just won a Stanley Cup. Yeah, I have this ongoing conversation with Elon, my co-host, about how, in my opinion, Matt Murray isn't yet out of Cam Ward territory. And he he's, I think he's tired of the argument, but I have to say I'm relieved. Or, I mean, not relieved because I want the best for Matt Murray. I'd love for him <laughs> to succeed. But it's it's not a given, right? And it's forgotten that Marc Andre Fleury, he was a nine twenty one goalie last yeah. year in the regular season. Like had one of his better years. Was has always been steady. He's always been like league average or a little bit better for the better yeah. part of the last six seven years when the Penguins have fielded and a competitive team. And he's team. been getting better. He's been getting better every year. You know, the past two years he's been a top ten goalie. I thought that he was really unfairly judged last year trying to come back in in that one game after his concussion because that's that's really hard to yeah. do. I don't think it's totally on him. I think that the team and the trainers and the goalie coach should have recognized that he wasn't quite ready and just not thrust him into that role. But people, um, I don't think they want to admit that Flurry Flurry is really a top 10 goalie in the NHL now. That's what he is. And now you've got this this young kid, Matt Murray, who won a Stanley Cup, but he's still going to be in the shadow a little bit of Flurry. And I, I, it'll be interesting to see if Murray slips up, do they start riding Flurry? What does that do for Murray's psyche and his, you know, ability to adapt and improve and work with a goalie coach and say, okay, what are the flaws that are leading to, you know, my failures on the ice and can I improve those? I think more than any other position, goalie is it's by default of what it is. It's a solo position. You are left to your own devices a lot, and and it's it's a very um, you play a lot of mental games with yourself. So for young goalies, I, I'm always interested in what's their mental makeup, and it's hard to judge that from where we sit. You know, it's much easier when you're a goalie coach and you can work with them. But I think that that's how you really determine whether a young goalie is going to be successful or not, aside from his physical abilities, is what is his mental makeup and his ability to rebound from failure and, uh, you know, forget a bad game and move on and work on his fundamentals and, and issues that he has, you know, at the NHL speed. And I don't know if Murray can do that. It'll be interesting to see. Hellebuck is just so phenomenally talented that, that I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm just hopeful that he's, you know, going to be able to do what he did early on when he first came in. I think it was those first like 10 games where he was just absolutely dominant. It was insane. Above 930 for a chunk of them. He was right. like, he was, and he kept that up for even like just about 20 games, but then he, he, he really did flame out. Yeah, yeah. It, wow, it was that long. Yeah, you're right. But, you, you know, I, I just, I see him and how talented he is. And I'm like, gosh, you know, I know nothing about his mental makeup whatsoever. But man, is he so talented. I would just be excited. And the, the, the interesting thing about Hellebuck is he's in a totally different situation than Murray. There is no incumbent in the Jets organization that, you know, has a leg up on the job as far as I'm concerned. You know, Pavlik is Pavlik. Um, sure is. You know, H- Hutchinson is Hutchinson. You know, what else is there? So we're talking about like he's really got it all out in front of him. If they give him that chance, you know, he could secure the job and not really have to look over his shoulder. So it's different than Murray. So I, I really am interested in watching those two. And then, and then if I threw out Allen, Anderson, and Gibson at you just quickly, I, I, I know adjusted goal saved above average. You know what? I'm calling it Adjgisa for the rest of the interview because <laughs> I've tripped over it enough. It's a descriptive stat, I know, but if, if you had to use your gut, do you have a feeling over which of these three guys might be able to prove their legitimacy 
the best in in a measurement like Ajgisa per 60 minutes uh, with the opportunities they have this year. Gibson is a guy that, ha- again, has a lot of physical gifts. Kind of reminds me of Quick in a lot of ways in that he has raw potential. He ha- I don't think he's quite learned how to control it. I'm talking about him like he's a sorcerer. I- I'm interested to see how he does with you know nobody to really push him. But I could tell you that Mercad 60, which is a, the easier way to say it. You right, know, of course. It, has not been kind to Gibson at all. Um, he, he really has struggled. And it's interesting because he got Vezina votes last year, but he was on the wrong side of that stat. And nobody else on the wrong side of that stat got Vezina votes. So I don't know where that came from, but it infuriated me. And <laughs> I let people know on Twitter about how infuriated I was. That's a perfect example of a, a guy with the wow factor where people don't understand the underlying stats aren't there for him. But boy, he can make a, a you know an amazing glove save or fly across the net to make a last second you know stop with his pad. So I'd like to see what he does over the course of a whole season. Anderson, I think Anderson's steady. He's a, just a steady, you know, league average to slightly above league average goalie. I thought that was a great pickup by Toronto. I, I and people kind of scoff at the price, but I think he'll be fine. And, and I think that Gibson got in the way of his performance, to be honest with you, because he's one of those guys who I think is a rhythm goalie where he, um, he just benefits from knowing, okay, I'm going in every game, or I'm, I, this is when I'm going to play, and I do my thing. And he's one of those goalies that was, you know, if I was talking about earlier looking for things in a goalie that are positive, he's a great goalie to watch because he makes, he makes his life easy for himself. He makes simple, easy saves. He's rarely out of position. So um, I'm excited to see him on Toronto. I, I think he could have a really good few years for them. Allen, you know, I have no idea with Allen, to be honest with you. Um, I've never liked Allen's game. I hate the fact that they brought him in in the postseason because he is really good at playing the puck. I thought that was one of the dumbest reasons to bring in a goalie. I don't know. Maybe that's a personal thing because I suck at playing the puck. But, you know, I don't know what to ex- – I've never seen it with Allen. I don't think that he'll ever he'll ever be anything better than maybe league average to slightly below league average. That's what he's been so far in Mercad 60. That's what he's been in um, AAA percentage, which is above average appearance percentage, which is just basically Mercad 60 how often a goalie is above average in Mercad 60. Is that like a quality starts version of Mercad 60? Yes, that's exactly what it is. It's great because it speaks to consistency. If you're looking at a guy who's up around 60%, you know, like uh, let's say a Mason or a Carey Price or, or a Lundquist, well, that's a very consistently above average goalie. That's what you want. You might have a goalie who overall is above average in Mercad 60, but has a below average AAA percentage, which tells me he's a volatile goalie. And an example of that would be Quick, who who hovers around league average or below league average in AAA percentage, but usually hovers around average or above average in his overall Mercad 60. So that to me is a goalie I don't want to I just don't want to deal with. I, I don't know what I'm going to get out of them. I hear you. Volatility is a very frustrating thing as a fan, as even just a casual observer, or especially as a fantasy hockey owner of these guys. And Alan, you know, I've, I find myself very nonplussed about him too. Like I thought his chance two years ago, like that was when I wanted him to take over from Elliot. And I thought Elliot was ripe for the picking. Yeah. And then Alan had like a 913 save percentage. And then last year, Alan 
was able to step his game up, uh, but not enough to win the net from Elliott, who stepped his game up even more, which leads me into... Uh, I want to go through two quick goalie tropes that are commonly batted around and get a sense from you. Fact or fiction, a good number two pushes a number one goalie to be better. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> it depends. Inconclusive. <laughs> I knew you'd um, go for that. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. This is my personal experience um, as a coach. I have coached goalies who absolutely need somebody to push them and it can't just be the coach it can't be his teammates it has to be the threat of losing their net and you know I don't know exactly what the mental makeup is that you know where goalie kind of requires that what I truly believe is that some guys with competition it just brings out the best of them when they feel like they're not competing I don't know they get complacent whatever it may be um, and they don't perform as well so I've coached goalies like that I have also coached goalies who do terribly when they have somebody breathing down their neck um, or who do worse than normal when they have somebody breathing down their neck. You know, I look at Philadelphia. Philadelphia has two phenomenal goalies, two goalies that could start for a lot of teams in the NHL. But I worry about Mason, who's like my main guy, (laughs) because I, I truly believe that he's at his best when he doesn't have somebody breathing down his neck. And I think that after the, the you know his poor showing in the postseason this past year, I, I think that they're going to g- probably give too much net to Neuverth, and that could negatively impact Mason. Mason was truly at his best when Neuverth got injured, and then Mason went on a hot run, and it was unquestioned going into the stretch of the uh, stretch run of the season that Mason was the number one guy. He's an example of a goalie where I just don't think that having a great backup who's threatening to steal time is a benefit to him. Now, with that being said, I think an NHL team would be stupid not to have as many great goalies as they can get. And as far as I'm concerned, when you're playing at, a, at that level and you're professional, you have to deal with all sorts of circumstances. And one of them may be that somebody's trying to take your job from you. So, you know, if a goalie can't stand up to that and they falter because of it, I kind of go, well, so be it. If I were running an organization, I would say I'd rather have three really good goalies and one of them can't deal with competition than have one really good goalie who can't deal with competition and then no backup in case he gets injured or whatever it may be. Yeah, it seems like a dangerous game to play to want to cave to that goalie's psyche. You're in bad shape if they get injured. So it sounds like fact and fiction. It depends on the mental makeup, which of course we... We don't know without really getting to know these people on a personal or at least professional basis. Okay, second one I'm going to throw it at you. Some goalies really thrive on big workloads and when they get into rhythms and they play worse if they play less often or less consistently. Yeah, I think that's fact. Um, some goalies, not all goalies. A great example of the opposite of that is Elliot. He has thrived for most of his career as a tandem goalie. Now, I don't know how he would do as a full-time starter, but he is certainly not a guy who, I, I don't think he needs to start every game. I don't think that there's some inherent benefit to his performance by, by him knowing that he's going to start every game. But I, you know, I don't know that for, for a fact, but he's, he's the, uh, an example of the opposite. But I do absolutely think that certain goalies thrive on big workloads. And they play better um, when they know that they're going to 
be playing night in and night out. They're going to be that guy. They can mentally prepare for it. And again, I go back to my personal experience. I, I struggled in a couple times in junior hockey where I was a tandem goalie and in prep school hockey where I was a tandem goalie. I struggled. When I got the net with nobody else really threatening me for it, it wasn't that I didn't have to look over my shoulder. It was more that I could prepare for every game uh, in front of me well in advance and, and kind of have myself mentally keyed up to go and know that I'm going to be the, the guy in the net. And I think that there are a lot of NHL goalies that feel that way. And if you ask them, they would say, I want to play every single game. Obviously, that's not realistic. But if they're not playing the majority of games, I think their performance could absolutely suffer. Ryan Miller is one of the best examples of that. He is a nightmare if he's not playing regularly. He'll come in and just be awful. But if you give him 15 games in a row and he's playing the style that, that benefits him the most, the style he was playing last season, which is his aggressive style, 12 out of those 15 games, he's going to give you average to above average performance. Lundqvist is another guy. I think he gets all out of sorts when he's not playing every night. So what I have always thought is best with Lundqvist is if he's struggling, just take him out for five or six games in a row, right? <laughs> just let him sit for five or six games, get yeah. his stuff together, and then have him come back and play his 15 you know, fifteen of the next 16 or whatever it is. Um, yeah. uh, I, I think that you know, he's just, for whatever reason, he's a, he's a rhythm type of goalie. Yeah, but like I said, other goalies, you know, I don't know if it matters at all. Luongo, I think he'd be the same if he was playing or not playing or whatever. He's just, you know, he plays how he plays. Okay. Nick, that was amazing. All of that. Thank you. I'm done throwing questions at you. Shared <laughs> thoughts on like 80% of the goalies in the league, and I couldn't have asked for more. Before I let you go, though, one quick question, more administrative than anything. Where can we find Mercad per 60 and AAA or AAA? I forget what the acronym actually stands for, but I know I like it. And Marcel's. Is there somewhere we can find that data online right now? Yeah. So, well, so one of the things that's been interesting, um, or I guess a challenge, is that, uh, as you know, War on Ice went dark uh, at the end of last season. And that's where I was pulling a lot. I was aggregating the, the, the stats that go into those statistics. Uh, I was pulling it from there. So it's going to move forward in a different way now. Uh, I've looked into, I've been working with uh, a little bit with, with Manny, who runs Corsica, yeah. uh, to kind of reinvent the stat to use um, expected goals, which includes a number of other quality measures, which I'm, I'm not going to get into right now. So we may, you know, he has a version of adjusted goal saved above average per 60 minutes on his site. He just calls it GSAA, but it's basically calculated the same way, but with using his stat. We may, you know, I, I may try to work with him and, and tinker that if he's, you know, if he's interested in that. But if not, you can find the original stat and AAA percentage on a blog site run by Ian Fleming. A lot of what I talk about, I post on my Twitter, which is nmercad, N-M-E-R-C-A-D. And I post all season charts and, and little tidbits of information. But if you're looking just for, for the numbers themselves, Ian has come up with, basically, it's like Dominic Gallimini's hero chart, but he calls it save. And it's for goalies. His Twitter is imfleming16. And he, his uh, site is ianmfleming.blogspot.com. That has AAA percentage, 
It has adjusted goal saved above average per 60. It also has uh, stuff on high danger, save percentage, medium danger, low danger, and all that stuff that was on War on Ice previously. We may try to expand on it and, and do some more. I don't know. But for now, it's there. It's on my Twitter and to be determined beyond that. All right. Thanks again for your time. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more after the fact about your win threshold discussion coming up at the RIT Hockey Analytics Conference, which is on September 10th. And I know I'm not going to be there, but I'm going to be watching Twitter to see if there might be a live stream or something. And hopefully slides or YouTube footage or whatever will be available afterwards. Uh, once again, Nick, uh, you people can find you on Hockey Graphs and also on Twitter. Would you mind shouting out your own handle for us? Sure. It's nmercad, N-M-E-R-C-A-D. And uh, you can follow me on there. It's uh, a mix of hockey, Harford Whaler specific stuff, <laughs> Rangers stuff, NHL goalie stuff, and just general nonsense in between. Which is really a fantastic mix. Thanks again, Nick, for joining us. And thanks for listening to another bonus episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. We've got our big goalies episode coming out on Sunday. Some more goalies board coming out this weekend. We will speak to you then. 